Chapter 2 What is Sin? by Timothy R. Jennings Have you ever struggled with the question of what constitutes sin? Is sin a commodity transferred from person to animal in a ritualistic way? Or perhaps from sinner to savior? Is it bad deeds, evil acts, or bad behavior? Is it a condition of heart and mind that is incompatible with life? Recently, I had the opportunity to speak with over 350 Christian high school students. I passed out cards and asked them to write down their answers to the question, what is sin? Here are a few of their responses. An act contrary to that for which God stands. Something that separates us from God. Doing something morally wrong. Anything evil or unjust. Something that brings us down. The absence of anything good. Anything not of God. Doing anything you know deep inside is wrong. Bad stuff. A bad thing that Satan discovered and brought upon us. The cause of all pain and suffering. When you do something you feel guilty about. Anything that makes God unhappy. Something to be forgiven. Whatever you do wrong, yet don't even care what you did. The following two answers were submitted by more than 10% of the students. Sin is not following the Ten Commandments. Sin is going against the will of God. As I contemplated these answers, I realized they seemed to break down into two general categories. One, sin is bad behavior, an act of disobedience, something we do wrong. Or, two, sin is some evil commodity, an entity, element, thing, or stuff that separates us from God or makes us unhappy. It almost seemed that if we could only just get rid of this sin stuff, things would be a lot better. Is sin a substance we can transfer to someone else? Is sin simply doing bad acts? Or is it more? Three students saw sin differently. Their answers pierced a deeper level of truth. To them, sin was something more than bad behavior and was certainly not a commodity that could be passed from one person to the next. These three saw sin as the absence of love the opposite of God's character. Sin is being selfish. Focusing on self. Sin started with Satan and his desire to be greater than God. This is the root of all evil. These three saw sin as a state of being, a defect in character, a deviation from God's heart of love. How do you answer the question, what is sin? Now, you might be thinking, who cares how we define sin? So long as we accept Jesus, we are saved. What difference does it make? The difference between life and death. The right diagnosis. As a doctor, one of the first skills I was taught was how to diagnose. Because if the diagnosis is wrong, then the treatment is usually wrong. If I have a patient in heart failure, I might give a diuretic to help the kidneys remove excess fluid and take pressure off the heart and lungs. But if the patient actually has kidney failure, 
and I misdiagnose him with heart failure and give the diuretic, it will do no good. Likewise, how we diagnose what sin is helps us understand God's treatment plan so that we can cooperate more effectively with him to experience healing of heart and mind. Understanding what sin really is helps protect us from accepting as true one of the many false remedies or false gospels being promoted around the world. So what is the right diagnosis? The Bible says everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is being lawless or without the law, being outside the law. The old King James Version says sin is transgression of the law. But that brings us to the next critical question. What is the law? Before we can dissect sin, we need to know what law is being broken. With what law is sin actually out of harmony? We can describe God's law in two primary ways. One, a legal enactment by the creator of the universe, an imposed set of rules to which created beings are required to adhere upon threat of an imposed penalty by the creator of the law. Two, a principle emanating from the creator upon which life is designed to operate or function. Deviations are inherently incompatible with life as the Creator designed it. From these two diverging ideas of God's law, two separate views of sin have emerged, and subsequently, two very different ways of resolving the sin problem have been taught. From definition number one emerges the version that argues God is arbitrary and imposes laws upon his creatures that they must obey. When the law was broken, God, in order to be just, had to impose penalties upon his creatures. This view portrays sinful mankind under the legal condemnation of God and without hope of life eternal unless the legal penalty is paid. Sin, from this perspective, is merely disobedience to an imposed law. Rule-breaking equals bad behavior, thus simplified by the high school student's description of not following the Ten Commandments. The way the proponents of this theory solve the sin problem is to propose that Jesus came as their legal substitute. They suggest that Jesus lived a sinless life and offered himself to God in the sinner's place, and that all the sins of the world were transferred to Jesus so that he experienced God's punitive justice, thereby paying our debt for the crimes of sin committed by all humans. After this payment by Jesus, we were then granted forgiveness and life eternal. But only if we accept the payment of Christ's blood on our behalf. Christ gets to live again because he never actually sinned. And we get to live forever because he paid our legal debt. This is commonly called the penal substitution model and stems entirely from the conclusion that God's law is an imposed or enacted set of rules requiring him to enforce penalties in order to be just. The law of life. But what if the law of God is not enacted, imposed, legislated, or decreed? What if God's law is something entirely different? What if sin is something more sinister than a mere breaking of rules? What if sin is a damaging condition that kills people? 
Wouldn't that call for a treatment or solution for sin that is more than just a legal payment? Is it possible that the sin situation requires some change in the heart of those affected? How does the Bible define the law of God? Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The Bible teaches that God's law is the law of love. The law of love is not something God created, but is the life principle that emanates from God's very being because God is love. Love is not enacted or legislated or imposed, but is simply the natural order of all things arising from the God of love. This law of love is the design template upon which God has constructed all life to operate and is described in Scripture in this way. Love is not self-seeking. In other words, love is other-centered and outward-moving. The law of love is the law of giving. Such perfect love was revealed in Christ, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but gave himself to save mankind. Greater love has no man than he gives his life for a friend. And this is how we know what love is. Christ gave himself for us, and we are to give ourselves for our brothers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. When the God of love created, he created all life in harmony with his own character of love. Life is constructed to exist only when operating in perfect, other-centered love. All life, health, and happiness are dependent upon harmony with this law. Love in Nature In nature, we see this design template in every breath we take. When we breathe, we give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants freely give back oxygen to us, a perpetual circle of giving. This is how life was designed to function, which is the law of love in operation. If we break this principle by stepping outside the circle of giving and choose to stop giving away our carbon dioxide, then the only possible result without intervention, is death by suffocation. But such a death occurs as a result of breaking the law of life, not as a legally imposed penalty. Sin is stepping outside the law of love, breaking the circle of life's normal operation, severing the outflow of selfless giving, violating the construction protocols for life. In other words, sin is lawlessness, or being outside the design template of love, outside of love. Sin is taking rather than giving, selfishness 
rather than selflessness. And just as biological death results when the law of respiration is broken, so too the unremedied breach in the law of love results in eternal death. Broken trust. Some get confused because the Bible describes sin in ways other than lawlessness. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. We might paraphrase this passage and say, failure to trust God is sin. But why would failure to trust be the same as sin or lawlessness? Because God is love. And failure to trust God is failure to value love. And broken trust breaks down love. Consider a young couple who are dating. The bonds of love are growing. But then one of them discovers the other is cheating. What happens to trust? Does the breach in trust impact love? But what if no cheating occurred, yet one still believed the other was cheating? Is trust still broken? When we believe lies, trust gets broken. This happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan lied about God. Adam and Eve believed the lies, and trust in God was broken. Broken trust severs the circle of love and results in changes to the internal motives of the heart. Such change in heart motives result in changes in behavior, and we ultimately act badly. This is the third biblical definition of sin. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. When Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies about God, their trust in God was severed. Broken trust resulted in an internal change in their thinking and feeling. Their very natures, methods of operating, and internal motives were altered from perfect, other-centered love to selfishness, the me-first principle. They sought to promote themselves and ate the forbidden fruit. Selfishness is the opposite of love. It is taking rather than giving and is incompatible with life. Any living system that takes and refuses to give will eventually cease to exist. Consider eating, taking in food, but never giving back products of digestion to fertilize the earth. What would be the outcome? Death. Selfishness, taking, me first, is a terminal condition. Without healing, without restoring God's law of love into humankind, the only possible outcome is death. Thus, the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The Symptoms of Sin Sadly, Throughout history, people have confused the reality of our sinful condition with the symptoms of that condition and concluded our problem is not a sinful heart, but bad acts that arise from our corrupt hearts. But Jesus taught that the bad acts are actually symptoms of hearts and minds that are sinful. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, each human being has been born with a heart and mind out of harmony with the law of love. 
we are born self-centered. And it is this defective condition of heart that leads to acts of sin. When people have pneumonia, they have symptoms of cough and fever. The coughs and fever are not the problem. They are the symptoms. The real problem is the underlying pneumonia. The treatment for pneumonia is not merely to focus on the behavior of coughing or the symptom of fever, but to treat the underlying disease. When the underlying infection is cured, the fever and cough resolve. Likewise, when we understand that God's law is the law of love, we understand that sin is a condition of being, a condition of being outside the very design for life. As the discerning students wrote, sin is the absence of love, selfishness the opposite of God. Sinfulness is sickfulness, being empty of love and full of the sickness of selfishness. Sin, therefore, is a condition that is opposed to love and, if not cured by God, will result in eternal death. This terrible condition has symptoms that we call sins. God's Diagnostic Tool God, in His mercy, understood that not only does sin kill, but it also dulls the senses and makes it hard for us to discern our fatal condition. Sin impairs our ability to see how sick we really are. Therefore, God gave us the written law, Ten Commandments, as a diagnostic instrument to convict us of sin, to awaken us to our terminal state, to arouse us from lethargy and lead us to Him for recreation and cure. Paul tells us we couldn't recognize our sick state of sinfulness if it weren't for the effectiveness of the law in diagnosing us. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. But sadly, far too many have misunderstood God's gracious use of the written law. Having accepted the false idea that God imposes law and therefore imposes penalties, they conclude that sin is primarily behavioral. The compounded errors of misunderstanding God's law to be an imposed law and misdiagnosing our problem as behavioral rather than getting to the root of our heart problem have resulted in a gospel remedy that fails to heal. The truth is that love begets life. Sin, being out of harmony with love, is out of harmony with the foundation of life itself and produces death. Sin is a condition of heart and mind driven by self-promotion, and if left unremedied, this condition is terminal. Jesus is our remedy. Understanding that God's law of love is the principle upon which life is designed to function, we then realize that sin is being lawless or out of harmony with the basis for life. And when we understand that this condition, unless remedied, is terminal, we realize our need of a Savior. With these truths in mind, we understand more clearly what Jesus actually came to accomplish. He came to reveal the truth in order to dispel the lies about God and win his earthly children back to trust. But Jesus had to accomplish more than a revelation of truth. He came as our substitute. He did this not in some legal way to pay some legal penalty, but rather by becoming one with us. He took our condition upon himself so that in his own person 
he could cure our terminal condition. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was made like his brothers in every way, so that he could do what we could not do, perfectly rewrite the law of love back into the human being. In Jesus, God dwells in humanity. And through Jesus, God's law of love again flows into the human being. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus took upon himself our infirmities, sickness, weakness, and was tempted with powerful human emotions to act in self-interest. In Gethsemane, Jesus agonized and was tempted to do what? Save himself. But each time when the temptation came to save self, Jesus instead chose to give self. In Jesus, that unique hybrid of God and man, love destroyed the infection of selfishness and perfectly restored God's love into the human species. Heaven and earth were united in Christ once again. All who accept the truth Jesus revealed and are one to trust will then open up their hearts and experience God's love poured into them. This supernatural recreation of character restores people back into the image of God and into unity with God and His life of love.